Hey, podcast listeners, this is Andy Stone reminding you to mark your calendars for March 11th through 15th, which is Penn's annual Energy Week. Whether you join us in person or online, you'll enjoy timely discussions on the energy transition curated by scholars, thought leaders, and practitioners. On March 15th, join us on campus for a conversation with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. If you can't make it, you'll find him on the podcast later this spring. Register for the event and more at energyweek.upenn.edu. Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Later this week, the California Energy Commission is due to submit its strategic plan for the development of offshore wind energy to the state's legislature. The plan is the culmination of several years of efforts by California to jumpstart its offshore wind industry and to help the state reach its goal of 100% carbon-free electricity by the year 2045. Yet California's offshore wind ambitions are also a bet on floating offshore wind technology that is required by the state's deep ocean waters. The technology has seen limited global implementation to date, and it presents technological and economic hurdles that could complicate the state's offshore wind efforts. On today's podcast, we'll dive into the challenges that lie ahead for California offshore wind. My guests are Tim Fisher, Executive Director for Global Wind with Ramble a Danish offshore wind consultancy working on the California project. Joe Rand is a researcher at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, where he focuses on the challenge of interconnecting clean energy to the grid and the impacts of energy infrastructure on local communities. Tim and Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. So, Tim, you and Ramble have been deeply involved in some of the uh, East Coast offshore wind projects here in the United States. Now you're working on California. Tell me a little bit about the project in California and your work with Ramble. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I mean, before maybe entering the topic, a bit of background. As you said, the Danish consultancy headquartered in Copenhagen. But I think it's fair to say we, are, we also have around about 30 offices across the United States. And, uh, well... I'm involved on the market since Cape Wind, since the very early days. Then obviously, like many others, have stalled for a while. And then the past five years, heavily involved on the, I mean, U.S. East Coast, West Coast, South Coast, on probably 70% of all offshore wind projects uh, in on U.S. waters we are currently working. So pretty active in the scene. And yeah, well, and, and most recently also, I mean, I would say since two years active on the California market, uh, we also have some work ongoing on Hawaii. So there's already some activities on the West Coast. Obviously, now with the lease auctions been 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 held, uh, now even with more focus. And I think, yeah, interesting to see another coastline developing besides, obviously, the East Coast being already a couple of years further ahead. And Joe, you work in the Electricity Markets and Policy Group at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Tell us a little bit about the work and your focus there. Yeah, so our team at Berkeley Lab does a wide variety of analysis on cost deployment and market trends for renewable energy across the United States. As a U.S. Department of Energy funded national laboratory, uh, indeed, we are focused on research in the U.S. and don't have as much of a global focus. 
that said, uh, of course, we're keeping track of global trends and, and do some research that has certainly global impact and, and global you know, data inputs. My research personally focuses largely or broadly on what I consider kind of the leading barriers to rapid and widespread deployment of clean energy in the United States. And two of those major barriers, for example, include transmission and interconnection bottlenecks and backlogs. Uh, so just the, the process of getting you know, proposed projects actually connected to the grid. And then the, another big area of research that our team does is focused on social acceptance and kind of that as a barrier to deploying uh, wind and solar projects. Of course, speaking mostly about utility scale or large scale wind and solar projects in the U.S. All right. So today we're going to be talking about all these issues within the context of California's offshore wind development. And its development is based in Assembly Bill 525, which was passed by the state legislature in 2021. It requires the state to establish offshore wind energy goals for the end of this decade and all the way through 2045, which is when the state plans to be net carbon zero on its grid. Now, offshore wind development has intensified in recent years on the East Coast. Tim, I want to ask you, California's coastline is fundamentally different from the East Coast. It requires a different type of offshore wind technology, which is floating wind. Can you discuss California's unique, uh, I guess, offshore coastline, its geography, and introduce us to the concept of deep water wind? Just one thing before we make a deep dive on California. I mean, let's, let's first of all say offshore wind globally has gone through a, a, an amazing rapid expansion the past couple of years. I mean, it's super exciting to see how this industry is worldwide developing. And also in the United States, I mean, due to, I think, um, I mean, fantastic work out of m many of the states, federal government, I mean, a lot of business associations, universities pushing it. The reason I'm saying it is because I think it is important for the discussion also in California. It is a globally connected market. So when we discuss supply chain, technology development, et cetera, it is important to keep a view on the global market, the global trends, because it will also impact California and vice versa. That is just uh, very, very important to say. And obviously, I mean, East Coast, as I said in the beginning, is a couple of years ahead. So I think, therefore, the West Coast, of course, now has a good advantage to maybe learn some of the lessons already and make it uh, make some of the things different. Obviously, there, I think there are a couple of things that are almost the same on both coastlines, right? Uh, I mean, offtake grid connection is a challenge. It's uh, the whole port on infrastructure needs to be established. I think that's a similar challenge on both sides. Permit is, is always, I mean, it's, it's a new topic because it's a new type of technology. Rather similar, even though, as, of course, you have um, local specific habitat, uh, you have also local situations like Navy, uh, but also generally rather similar to the East Coast, you could say. I think the main differences we will see on the West Coast, obviously, is technology, because we're talking about projects down, I mean, a thousand meters deep, so I mean, truly deep water. But also workforce supply chain will be a little bit different. I mean, not different in the way I mean, that we will need it, like on the East Coast. I mean, there's a clear requirement for both workforce and supply chain. I think the major difference is that on the East Coast, you, you, you somehow have the European market uh, not that far away close by to help, whereas I think California is, is pretty much on its own. I mean, the Pacific Ocean is huge until you can maybe tap into uh, uh, another supply market like Asia. And by the way, Asia is also uh, pretty, pretty uh, busy with its own developments. Plus, of course, there are also maybe some geopolitical reasons. So California probably has to really solve it from the West Coast, whereas the East Coast can maybe on the su supply chain workforce uh, here and there still tap into the European market. 
And that's probably, uh, besides technology, one of the biggest uh, differences. And the final one, which is also not to be underestimated, I mean, on the East Coast, we have, a, I think, a pretty good fit of good wind conditions in the north with the big consumer centers in the north, where in, and if I now look at the West Coast as a whole, I mean, the further north you go, the better the wind, whereas you have the consumer centers rather than the south. So it's a different challenge from an offtake perspective because you basically will produce electricity, but you may not need it all. So you have to look into maybe alternative ways to get the energy down into the big consumer centers. So the grid development is we're going to be getting into is going to be a, a component of that, obviously important component. You know, I just wanted to point out from what I've read, about two thirds of offshore wind potential around the world is actually in waters that are too deep for the fixed platforms like you know, we're seeing on the East Coast and in most of the rest of the world. This is an interesting topic, and I was really looking forward to doing this podcast with both of you. In a prior life, I was a journalist, and uh, about 15 years ago, I wrote a story. One of my first clean energy stories was about a Norwegian startup company. This was around the year 2005, give or take. And uh, that company was working on developing deep water floating offshore wind technology. And I remember the conversation we had that went into that article, or one of the conversations, and uh, they discussed the platforms that are used for floating wind are very similar to what's used actually in the oil and gas industry for deep water for drilling. And uh, the idea was that this is a proven technology, uh, it's going to be ready to go, and here we are 15 years later, and deep water floating wind is still relatively nascent. Tim, I wonder if you could tell us why is it taken so long to scale deep water wind? Yeah, well, I think I, mean, I think you, you just explained one good good reason. It, it is actually not the same to oil and gas. I mean, that mistake has been done also 20 years ago in bottom fixed uh, offshore wind. I think we're dealing with a rather complex technology. I mean, I still remember my professor back at university saying offshore wind is for people that like dynamics because it is we're dealing with this super complex technology. And if bottom fix is already complex and floating wind is even more complex because, I mean, you're dealing with probably one of the most, I mean, civil structures on the planet. I mean, probably a floating wind turbine. I mean, the, the way it is loaded is super complex. It should operate 20, 30 years with hopefully no major uh, mistakes. And then, I mean, in super harsh weather conditions. And I mean, one thing we also shouldn't forget is, is it's still a rather young technology, right? I mean, we are, we're talking about, I mean, I myself, I mean, I'm now close to 20 years in the offshore wind business. Back in 20, 2006, had my first work in floating wind back then with, I mean, some of the pioneers from the United States, Jason Jonkman, to mention one of them from NREL. So 2006, 2007, it, it started with first kind of research. I think then we saw a first prototype in Norway in 2009 with a rather small turbine from Equinor. Then it took, I mean, until 2017, until we saw a first pre-commercial wind farm with only five units in Scotland. And since then, a couple of few further smaller pre-commercial projects. So it is still a rather young technology in a rather complex technical field. So there's maybe a starting point. The other one is, I mean, if, if you tap into new technology, I mean, there's always a risk and a beauty around it, right? Because if, if, if you go into a new technology, there, of course, are many new options to do things. And we also see that here in floating wind, because we see a lot of innovators coming with different types of material, because you could do them in steel, you could do them in concrete. You could, could do it, I mean, with different means of fabrication. You could use a kind of a shipbuilding type structure. You could maybe also go a little bit in the way oil and gas has uh, has fabricated floaters. Maybe also you want to lean into the wind turbine fabrication business. So 
all that together, if you look into the floating business, I mean, you can probably today find more than 100 concepts that theoretically could work. But the problem is 90% or maybe even 95% of them will never make it to market and will disappear again. And we may even see hybrids of them finally make it to market. But of course, all these, these vast amounts of options, with, I mean, all tapping into pretty fundamental different technologies, of course, makes it a bit more difficult to bring uh, technology to uh, a maturity level, like we see on bottom fixed, where you basically have only two or three different types of structures on the market with monopiles, jackets, and some concrete gravity-based structures. So it is um, so probably the sheer amount of options the market has at the moment makes it rather difficult for developers, for banks, for insurance companies to also get, of course, trust into the technology and, and, and truly commercialize it. And that connected with, I mean, you said it uh, just a minute ago, of course, there's a huge potential for floating wind worldwide. But the reality is also that the current hot offshore wind markets all still have rather well uh, reachable uh, bottom fixed uh, products, right? So therefore, there's still a lot of focus on bottom fixed in most of the markets uh, because it is commercially uh, more attractive. And therefore, I mean, the industry, of course, is, is currently focusing, first of all, on, on technology they understand, they trust and also the price level is competitive. Just curious, the, the technology that's going to be used offshore of California, you mentioned that there's many different options for the floating wind technology. Has the technology been decided yet, or is that still to be decided? Still to be decided. I mean, I mean, just to mention a few things, I mean, the floater itself, right, so the structure the wind turbine will be mounted on, as said, there are currently probably more than 100 different solutions on the market. So, I mean, and in the end, we will see solutions that, of course, fit to the particular market and in this case California. So the, the, the material choice will 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 of course fit to the market. Also the type of structure will have to fit the harbor conditions, the site conditions. But but also to mention you need a substation, right, to collect the electricity offshore and then you bring it with one big export cable to shore. Bottom fix you typically mount these substations on a big bottom fix foundation, but you can't do that in a thousand meters. So we are tapping into complete new technology. So you either need a huge substation floating as well, or there are also technologies proposing to put it on the seabed, like you do in oil and gas. So, so you're dealing with a rather new technology in almost all fields you're dealing with. And that, of course, brings some, some exciting challenges, let's put it that way. Well, so this uh, variety of options, and it sounds like uncertainty, is a good segue conversation to my next question. So in December of 2022, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management held a, an auction for wind leases offshore of California. There were five winning companies that bid a total of $757 million for the areas. Now, it's interesting to note that was the size of the California offshore lease Recently, there was an East Coast lease that turned in $4.37 billion in commitments. Does this lower lease sale value on the West Coast reflect or indicate kind of the greater uncertainty and risk that we're seeing with the development of, of California's offshore wind industry? I wouldn't say so. I think one has to be careful to not put too much signs into auction prices in offshore wind these days because it is... These prices are highly influenced by many, many factors. For example, company strategies, right? I mean, one day you may find an oil and gas major that suddenly has a new strategy saying, I want to decarbonize my business. Let's enter offshore wind. Then money isn't an issue. Then they will just pay whatever they have to pay to get a project. I mean, next day they may just change their strategy. I mean, you may have followed Shell's recent announcements of the new company policy strategy that basically says back into oil and gas, 
maximize return on shareholders, maybe then the appetite for offshore wind will be reduced. So it is closely linked to strategy of companies. If I mean, you just mentioned New York. I mean, in New York, you could also see, I mean, the highest prices were paid by developers that were by then not, not in the U.S. market, present in the offshore wind market. So basically, they were maybe a few years late to the, to the business. Therefore, they had to buy a pre- uh, pay a premium to get into the business. Right. Uh, where more established maybe could 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 leverage on existing projects, existing portfolios, existing uh, knowledge. So auction prices these days, it's very difficult to get a direct link to a risk. Ha- having said that, of course, there are some truths to the figures you're seeing. And I mean, as previously said, I mean, the West Coast is, of course, not an easy territory to develop offshore wind, right? It, it is basically a complete new offshore wind market geography, even though we have the East Coast it is just fundamentally different from a from a geographical, geopolitical, from a site condition perspective. So in that sense, of course, there's a risk to it. Therefore, probably developers weren't willing to pay as much as on the East Coast. But there's one, I would say, very positive sign here because uh, Equinor, the Norwegian oil and gas major and wind developer, I mean, they are, they are the most experienced developer when it comes to floating wind. I mean, it was Equinor. In 2009, uh, putting the first prototype offshore, and it was also Equinor then, I think, putting the first two pre-commercial projects into the water in Europe. And, I mean, they have secured a lease in California, right? And, I mean, I would, I, I think they wouldn't have done it if they wouldn't believe in the market. So it's a pretty clear signal that there's a clear belief in that market and that technology that this is uh, all doable. So, Joe, I want to jump to you here for a moment. So, the California Energy Commission is due to submit its strategic plan by the end of this month to the state legislature with its offshore wind targets. And I believe those targets are two to five gigawatts by the end of this decade and 25 gigawatts by 2045. So, that's a lot of wind that needs to be interconnected. And as Tim mentioned a few moments ago, transmission issues are really at the top of the list of challenges to be addressed. You have worked extensively on this issue. How ready is California's grid for offshore wind and and what work needs to be done? Yeah, I would say we've got uh, quite a bit of work uh, to do uh, in order to kind of ready California's grid for interconnecting the volume of offshore wind that, that is being discussed here. So just as an example, I'll talk briefly about the Humboldt call area, which is in Northern California. You know, this is essentially one of the more rural parts of California. There's not a a huge amount of uh, kind of local load or or electricity demand right in Humboldt County um, near where the offshore wind uh, lease area is. So it just can't kind of absorb a whole lot of electricity coming from that project. So recent studies have shown, for example, that, you know, if we were to build essentially what's a pilot scale or kind of small commercial scale offshore wind facility, off the coast of Humboldt County, um, you know, maybe the the local area could absorb, I don't know, 150 or 170 megawatt project with the current transmission export capacity. But really that that area is is looking at, you know, upwards of, you know, 1,500 or 1,800 megawatts of potential offshore wind capacity. So, um, you know, that's a 10x increase in potential offshore wind capacity at that call area from what is, you know, actually able to be you know, currently interconnected and absorbed. And I should say that that, you know, 150 or 170 megawatts that could be absorbed, you know, assumes that that would be a what's called an energy-only uh, resource for interconnection, not a network resource, which basically means that 
that project would face curtailment risk uh, when the transmission lines are congested. So suffice it to say, you know, it's really clear that transmission upgrades are needed. Uh, you know, certainly the, the CPUC recognizes that and the California independent system operator recognizes that as well. I'll also quickly mention, you know, KISO, California independent system operator, just last month uh, released their you know, 2022-2023 transmission plan that essentially identified 45 large transmission projects uh, that KISO was advancing to be built in the state representing, I think, $7 billion of investment in transmission or something like that. And I assume those, those integrate the offshore wind as well, right? Well, that's what's really interesting, actually, Andy, is that that was really designed to, to integrate a lot more solar, you know, land-based wind resources and wind resources from other states that surround California. But actually, Kaiso said, because of this AB 525 report due at the end of this month that we've been talking about, and because, you know, there's other steps in offshore wind development that are under you know underway uh, including kind of supply chain and developing harbors i think they're identifying that as sort of a little further off so they're not recommending approval of transmission in this planning cycle meaning 2022 2023 transmission plan for these big offshore wind transmission investments that we know we need um, but the, the Kaiso says they're going to look at advancing those upgrades in the next planning cycle, which would come out, you know, I think we expect April or May of 2024. Um, so certainly it's in the works. You know, Kaiso has a 20-year transmission outlook. That's not really the same as a plan. And that identifies like $30 billion of transmission investments needed to meet these kind of 2045 targets. And certainly those big offshore trunk lines are, are included in that 20-year outlook, but the plan that was just released last month uh, doesn't actually include those needed upgrades for offshore wind. So they're kind of punting that to next year. You know, it's interesting just uh, to jump back on the Humboldt lease, which is the, the Northern California lease. As I understand, I think as you explained as well, it's it's a bit remote, at least in terms of transmission infrastructure. And there's somewhere I was reading that said that, uh, you know, maybe if the transmission infrastructure isn't adequate or at some point in the future isn't built, to handle all the the energy coming in from that uh, offshore development, that maybe it's used to uh, run electrolyzers locally to produce green hydrogen. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I could see that as a possibility. I think that you know that's all comes down to kind of the what's the cost benefit analysis and the trade offs and what's kind of going to be the most the most useful uh, for for meeting our our targets here. And so, like you said, you know the the Humboldt area just I think it's got a couple of 115 kilovolt lines running east-west and a 60 kilovolt line running north-south and just not a whole lot of export capacity. So, yeah, so upgrading that um, would be a substantial investment in order to absorb, you know, on the order of gigawatts of, of export power coming through. The alternative that I've heard as well is, you know, thinking instead of upgrading those existing lines that run east-west over to kind of the, the central corridor, kind of in the central valley of California, instead considering maybe a subsea cable going from uh, Humboldt, which is again in northern California, down to sort of the Bay Area, where certainly you would have plenty of load to be absorbed there. But yeah, I mean, I could imagine a scenario in which electrolyzers and, and green hydrogen, you know, sort of seems like a, a viable alternative uh, instead of all those expensive transmission upgrades. If you've made it this far in the podcast, I'm guessing you're an energy geek just like me. 
And where do the coolest geeks gather? Energy Week at Penn, of course. Mark your calendars for March 11 through 15. You'll enjoy five days of programming on things like GHGs, CCS, EVs, DAC, ESG, VCMs, PPAs, and the IRA. What could be geekier than acronyms? Register now at energyweek.upenn.edu. Tim, I want to jump back to something that you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation. You talked about the, the supporting infrastructure for offshore wind on the East Coast, which is being developed now. And I think also you alluded to, to the West Coast, where none of this really exists yet. So I want to get a little bit more of a sense. What types of supporting infrastructure and industries are we looking at that need to be developed in California for equipment, et cetera, infrastructure that can't be brought in from elsewhere? What's going to need to be developed in California to make the floating wind industry work here? Yeah, maybe let me let me put that into perspective. First of all, I mean, if we talk about five gigawatts of installed floating wind capacity, I mean, just to mention a couple of uh, components, we, we talk probably around a, a, a thousand miles of mooring lines, just to mention one, one, I think quite, quite a high number. Or I mean, we probably talk 200, 250 floating substructures each five to 20,000 metric tons heavy. And by the way, each, I mean, as big as, I mean, you could put them into a football stadium each, right? So it's a huge technology we're talking about. Uh, I think probably also interesting to, to look at related industries. I mean, I've just checked the other day, FPSO units, so floating production units for oil and gas. I think they're currently worldwide, they're producing 30, 40, 50 per year at the moment. So, which is not, of course, the exact same technology, but it's a floating steel structure with mooring lines, et cetera, et cetera. We're producing 30 to 50, 60 per year. So that is probably at the moment we have a global supply chain for around about a gigawatt floating offshore wind if you would tap into the oil and gas supply chain. So there are major technology and supply chain uh, shifts that are necessary. And again, back to my initial statement, the U.S. is not alone. So obviously there are also other markets that tap into that technology. Uh, and therefore, it requires a lot of investments. I think I think many things could be solved on a temporary basis. If you, I mean, bringing them from overseas, bringing them from uh, nearby states, wind turbines typically, I mean, I mean, there, there are ways to solve it. I, I wouldn't consider the wind turbine itself. Uh, I would not consider it as, as the biggest issue. Uh, same with cables. Again, yeah, you need a lot of them, but typically it's solvable. Mooring lines is a bit of a challenge, but probably also, I mean, if the industry gets the perspective, I mean, the investments will come, the technology is there. I mean, probably the biggest challenge will be the floater, uh, the floating structure itself, because it will be so big that you will have to fabricate or assemble at least it locally. And this, of course, will require significant port upgrades, significant local infrastructure upgrades, not least, of course, I mean, all the surrounding supply chain. If it, if it is steel, of course, you need to bring all the steel products. Uh, if it is concrete, I mean, there's a lot of material you would use and need. So I think it's primarily the floating structure, because that's certainly nothing you will probably bring from overseas. That is probably what the market has to first focus on. Issue again is what I said just a few minutes ago, there are at the moment so many technology options on the market. It's very difficult to make the right choice now. So what port, I mean, if, if we now talk about the port of LA, right, I think it's a great announcement, the investments that shall be made. But again, just the draft in the, in the port may already 
decide on the type of floating uh, structure it could use or it could not use. You mean the depth of the California port? Exactly, the channel in the, in the port. Right? If, if, if it isn't deep enough, then maybe certain floating structure types are already non, non-doable again. So it is, it is all interconnected, and that all connected still with insecurity on what will be the final technology that will be used in these projects. And therefore, that is probably the most important thing to clarify first from the developer perspective. And then obviously, we need the, the investments primarily into the substructure, because I think that's probably the biggest gap we're seeing. So physical infrastructure is, is a big step forward. Also, there's a, a human infrastructure question as well. The, you know, uh, manpower to support the scale development of, of floating wind. Tell us where California stands with that. Yeah, I mean, that's often, uh, often forgotten, right? And then people say, yeah, we need to accelerate programs at universities. And of course, we need uh, well-educated engineers and, and business people. But we also need, I mean, people in the, in the production facilities. I mean, we'll need many of them. I mean, you need, I mean, if it is steel structures, you need welders. I mean, if it is concrete, you probably need to people that, that can deal with precast concrete uh, structures. And that takes time to develop such uh, capabilities. Are these transferable skills from existing industries or they have to kind of be built up specific to offshore wind? It depends a bit on the final technology pick, but I think, I mean, depending on if it is more like a shipbuild type or a bit of an oil and gas type of structure, uh, I think they're, they're transferable from other industries. Certainly they are. So I think that that, that is possible. But of course, uh, California is, is at the moment um, uh, maybe not uh, I mean, state with, with the largest oil and gas and shipbuilding facilities. So therefore, I mean, you will have to do some transferring here and, of course, educational programs, et cetera, et cetera. We need to focus on that. Yeah, I mean, transferring. I mean, a couple of engineers, and I'm I'm one myself. I mean, that's that's maybe a bit of an easier job, but really transferring. I mean, in the UK, I mean, just to to step a bit. I mean, the UK also had many many years back said, well, we want local content, but the UK has back then forgotten that. I mean, they also. I mean, the the most of the steel industry has left the country for decades already due to due to many reasons. And they wanted local supply, but there was basically very little welders you could hire. So. So then the industry said, so how can we do it? There's basically no workforce available that, that should do what we are supposed to do. And it took, of course, now quite some time to, to reinvest and retrain. And now slowly it is picking up, but it also took them many, many years to get there. So let me ask you a follow-on question here, Tim, about getting this all ready. And again, the target that California has set for 2030 for its floating wind industry is to have two to five gigawatts of wind in place. Now, it's interesting. We've talked about some of the physical infrastructure, the human infrastructure challenges. There's also environmental reviews, which I understand can take up to five to six years to complete. You've got one to two years for construction once the project gets underway. Given these hurdles, right, uh, and related challenges, is the 2030 goal, in your view, for two to five gigawatts of floating wind realistic? I think it is. We will not achieve it. I mean, exactly. Everyone's is pretty clear on that. I mean, if you just look at a typical development timeline, it, it is non-doable, not to that scale. But I also do not see that as a big problem because I think, first of all, it is, it is important to have a, a strong commitment and have a clear path of what we want to develop. And that 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 is now has been given by, I mean, both Biden saying 15 gigawatts floating by 35 and also the state of California making clear commitments. So I think in that sense, it is, Another problem if you do not meet it exactly. And I think it is more important that we do it right and not quick, right? Because we have seen that before. I mean, we, we, I mean what, we, what we should avoid is temporary quick fixes. Like, I'm sorry to say, we have seen on some projects on the East Coast. I mean, they just, you know, they had the pure interest in bringing their own project into the water. 
Then you talk about temporary fabrication facilities, all such things that after the projects will disappear again. That is not what we want. We want to build a long-term, long-lasting local new industry along the West Coast. And that takes time. And then, then rather give it a few more years and, and make it real and right instead of making our quick fixes and bring things from overseas. And, you know, once the products are built, everyone stays, stays away again. So I think in that sense, I would say it isn't a big problem if we do not meet it exactly. It is important that we get it started because, as you said, it takes time. If you just take a port development in the United States, just a permit of it takes you already a couple of years, then the investment and the construction, and not even talking about the offshore wind projects themselves. So it, it will take some time. But we also need that time because we have to develop all the surrounding factors, right? And I think it is important that we as an industry talk openly about it. So also, I mean, challenge it. Um, I, I think we also need the politicians to understand that we need realistic targets. We don't want to work work with the wrong wrong data points because I, we, we all, all don't want a bad surprise in seven years, right? Where suddenly everyone says, well, where are the projects? And therefore, it is important just, to, I think, to be transparent on it. Um, and realistic. That, by the way, also goes for the prices we will see in terms of levelized cost of energy. I think there we also need a realistic and open discussion was really possible because, I mean, we will require a lot of investments on the West Coast. And uh, depending on the way these project developments are set up, I mean, the developers have to carry quite a lot of these investments. So, I mean, when I read about $45 by 2035 floating wind uh, energy prices in the US, I mean, I think we have to be a little bit careful with that. I mean, today, probably we're talking about $150, $180, the price as of today. I mean, this industry is here, here to stay. I think it's a, it's a generation project, you could say, right, to, to bring that up, up and running on the West Coast. So you just mentioned a couple of numbers, $45 per megawatt hour by the year 2035. That's the goal of the uh, Department of Energy's floating offshore wind shot, which was announced a few months ago. And Joe, I want to jump to you on this one. So Tim just mentioned levelized cost of energy. How competitive is the floating offshore wind at this point? Where does it need to be? I agree. $45 per megawatt hour is is pretty ambitious uh, by 2035 in the U.S. Like Tim said, you know, I think right now we're looking at probably more like $150 a megawatt hour in that range. We've conducted some analysis where we surveyed and interviewed a bunch of global experts on uh, wind energy costs around the world. We did this back in 2015, and they estimated that floating offshore wind in 2020 might cost around a median of $165 a megawatt hour. So actually, these experts were pretty good at their you know, estimating back then for, for what floating offshore wind costs might be. And then we did the same study again in, in 2020, and they're estimating by 2025, those costs might decline to maybe $96 a megawatt hour. And by 2035, the global median, you know, these experts were estimating $63 a megawatt hour. So, you know, I, th I think if you were to ask the kind of global wind energy expert community, uh, they would certainly estimate higher costs in 2035 than, than what the DOE goal has established. And I want to also emphasize, Andy, to your question that, you know, these costs certainly are considerably higher than, you know, what you would compare to land-based wind uh, or, of course, fixed bottom offshore wind as well. So, you know, land-based wind, uh, unsubsidized in the U.S., I think we're seeing coming in, I don't know, around 30 to $35 a megawatt hour in the U.S. right now. And fixed bottom offshore wind might be more like $80 a megawatt hour. So, 
you know, certainly floating offshore wind is more expensive and will remain more expensive. I think what we need to be kind of thinking about in this conversation is the flip side of, of the kind of economic conversation where, you know, we're talking a lot about levelized costs of energy in terms of dollars per megawatt hour, but there's also a value to the grid system of these projects. Um, so, you know, to put that clearly, uh, we've been talking a lot about California, which uh, has a very high penetration of solar currently. What that means is that with increasing penetration of solar, we're seeing decreasing grid system value of solar energy in the state, meaning essentially the wholesale market price of electricity declines substantially in the middle of the day when we've got all these solar plants just cranking out electrons. Wind, especially in California, offshore wind uh, has a very complementary, you know, daily or diurnal profile um, in, in the sense that it you know, can produce more electricity typically in the in the late evening uh, and nighttime hours uh, when we're not getting power from solar. So again, I don't want to focus solely on the levelized cost. We also need to think that you know many of these floating offshore wind projects that are proposed uh, bring a lot of grid system value in the sense that they will you know provide clean electricity in the hours that we need them most. What's interesting, you just mentioned, obviously, the grid stability issue, right? And that's such a big issue uh, as California has an increasing level of penetration of renewables. Tim, jumping back to you, you started this conversation on cost a few minutes ago. Obviously, the costs will be high. Uh, and Joe just discussed some of the, the additional benefits that will come from the offshore wind development that, that are maybe considerations in addition to simple LCOE. But are there models of where governments have you know, successfully faced this challenge of needing a new type of resource. It is a new resource. It is high cost. What have governments done in the past? Have we, have we seen some, some successful examples that might be replicated in California? Yeah, I think, first of all, I mean, as for every new offshore wind market, I mean, um, local government, the state here has to decide what they want, right? Do they do the want to push for lowest possible price from the start, which could be a strategy, or do they want to also push for uh, maximizing local content? And both things will trigger a different path. I mean, from the start, pushing for both at the same time, I mean, local content with lowest possible price, I mean, we currently see on the East Coast how it cannot work. I mean, where we see a lot of projects being stopped, I think, due to that. I mean, a hybrid is possible, I think. And I think, in my opinion, also, I mean, what, what we should uh, strive for, because, of course, we have to be somewhat competitive on the, on the price level, but we also have to find mechanisms and OREX um, auctions later on that kind of moderate also, if I can say so, uh, the supply chain into into the state. Uh, I mean, good examples are Taiwan, as an example, right? Taiwan, after Fukushima, decided, well, we are, we are fully based on nuclear. What if something similar happens here? We need to build offshore wind. We want to attract local manufacturing. So they allowed very high prices from the start, which of course had as a condition that you set up local uh, fabrication facility. And and then it has worked. Another example is maybe the Dutch market, the Netherlands, where the government has solved many of the of the risks. I mean, on the transmission infrastructure, so the developers had a really clear pathway of what what can I mean? They could they basically know already three years or a couple of years in advance when they can actually connect their their wind farm to the grid. I mean, so you take away some some big big hurdles. So I mean, such kind of mechanisms I think could could help the industry. But basically, it is all around finding also smart, what I would call auction mechanisms, right? Because the next thing we'll talk about is OREX, and, and they have to be framed in a way that they actually support uh, the business. Because we shouldn't forget one thing here. We have five leases now owned by five different developers. 
each of them individually, they cannot really uh, drive that that establishment of the supply chain alone. So we need kind of we have to close uh, close the ranks here as a, as an industry. These five developers have to join forces. I think the state has to join these developers. One of the developers the other day told me, I mean, we basically first of all have to build the stadium all together that make it make it possible. Once the stadium is there, we can start to compete. But but first of all, we have to build that stadium. And was actually in a session in the in the in the stadium of Berkeley University. It was a good fit there. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of truth to it, right? Because I mean, it's a tremendous, I think, effort we have to do as an industry, and I think we have to join forces. And I think that's the only way to attract local content in 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 a joint effort. I know it's difficult in the United States, but I still have to. I keep on stating that as a European. I mean, consider the West Coast as a whole. I mean. I, maybe maybe it's the best to fabricate wind turbines instead of washing because you have an aircraft industry up there. Maybe maybe towers you could procure from the interstates. I mean, I mean assembly. Maybe there are certain ports uh, uh, in in California that are, are best suited for it. I think so. I mean, you have to maybe even look a bit broader because we will not be able to develop an industry now close to every project along the whole whole West Coast. And I mean, Oregon lease auction is coming next. So that also needs to be somewhat considered. So, I mean, that's maybe a last thing to consider. Can we even look at the West Coast states as a whole and and make a joint uh, supply chain strategy? Joe, I want to, before we finish up, jump to one other issue that was briefly mentioned earlier. It's very important. We we haven't gotten to it yet and we want to spend some time on it here. And, And that is that equity as well as environmental stewardship are going to be very important for these projects. So they have the social license to move forward. And this is an issue that's going to be addressed in the offshore strategic plan that will be submitted later this week. You've done a lot of work in this area. Tell us about the impacts that you see of the project, the opportunities. You know, what are the impacts going to be on the local communities? What are the opportunities for the communities as well? You know, certainly these proposed projects bring a ton of proposed opportunity in terms of, you know, economic development jobs and so forth. But I think, you know, when you speak with local communities and residents, um, you know, specifically maybe fishermen and tribal groups, um, you also hear a lot of concerns and apprehension. And, you know, they just obviously want things done the right way. So there has been a ton of research on this subject for land-based wind. Um, our team at Berkeley Lab has has led a lot of that work. And we found some kind of key drivers of social acceptance um, and improving outcomes for uh, for local communities kind of include, you know, really starting it early on in the planning process to engage the local communities as as key, you know, participants in the planning process and making sure that, you know, plans don't just kind of run over the local community without meaningful input. So this is kind of typically referred to as procedural justice. So making sure that the planning process itself is, uh, you know, not just to streamline. I mean, we we talked a lot today about trying to hit a 2030 target and that there are constraints and hurdles and barriers to that. But, you know, I think in many ways it, it can be counterproductive to consider the local communities and social opposition merely as a barrier that we must, you know, overcome. Uh, I think if we want to think about the long-term health of this industry, we need to learn from, you know, the lessons of the land-based wind industry in which, you know, I think in the U.S., uh, you know, we we were able to kind of develop a lot of projects, pick off the low-hanging fruit, but increasingly, you know, even as the economics of land-based wind were plummeting um, and it seemed like the industry should be taking off, uh, we were facing, 
you know, challenges that that we're no longer kind of economic or technological in nature, but increasingly we're kind of social and procedural and institutional in nature. So I think for the, you know, pivoting to thinking about the long-term health and prosperity of, of you know, offshore wind along the West Coast, um, we're still in that stage where, you know, the economic and technological questions are paramount, um, but we can't lose that kind of long-term vision that, you know, in order for this industry to thrive and for us to meet these targets and goals, um, we need to, to have communities uh, have a seat at the table. So specifically, again, referring to fishermen and tribes. And, and let me give one more example. Just uh, earlier this year, there was a partnership formed uh, between Cal Poly Humboldt, which is the the university up in Humboldt County, along with a community college, the uh, College of the Redwoods, and also a tribal group, uh, the Yurok tribe. They had a memorandum of agreement to train the workforce to, you know, provide all the, the you know, skills and knowledge needed to develop offshore wind in Humboldt County. Um, and really that enabled, I think, that in particular, that native tribe, the opportunity to participate fully in in the economic prosperity that these projects can bring. So, things like that, I, I think, are kind of a critical step uh, to you know bring all the affected communities to the table, um, and and we just can't lose sight of that and focus solely again on the on the economics and technology side of this. Just as a follow-on, uh, I, I ran across something. Uh, this is from calmatters.org. It was an, an article that I found. It says that companies that develop offshore wind projects in California will also be required to enter into labor agreements and work with the Native American tribes before beginning construction. So it sounds like that's worked into the plan. Yeah, and I think that's just a, an excellent approach. It's it's needed. Uh, I think historically, you know, we've kind of, <laughs> of course, these communities have been marginalized in in more than one sense. But no, I, I would just say through the history of U.S. energy development, you know, kind of those at the front lines of of energy development and, and the impacts of energy development have often had kind of little political and economic influence. And, and I think we have an opportunity to re-envision that a little bit. Tim, let me jump to you for a final question here on the next steps for development in California. What are the next steps in the project development? What is your role and Ramble's role going to be? Well, I think we are we are committed to grow a local team, and we already have an established offshore wind team in LA now. And as I said before, I think it is it is required. I mean, we need local people, we need local experts. I mean, that truly understand the local market, the the society. That coupled, of course, with our global uh, knowledge um, and transferring knowledge from Europe to the West Coast, I think that is there's one direct commitment we are, we have been given. And secondly, I mean, if if you, if you look at our company strategy, you will see. I mean, we consider ourselves as uh, what we say the partner for sustainable change. That means, I mean, we have a chance here to build a new industry, and we want to do it in the most sustainable way. I think that is also something I think we can we can bring to the market. And what would that mean to us? I mean, we, we have to develop solutions that certainly protect, I mean, the biodiversity we are having and maybe even increase it, right? I mean, there, there are now developments, eco-innovation developments that maybe even create artificial reefs. So, I mean, let's build an industry not only that, that supports the California state goals in renewables, but also, I mean, support on topics like biodiversity. I think talking about even topics like embedded carbon, circularity around projects is key. Again, we're building a new industry. Let's have it on the radar from the start. I think it even is a nice trigger for local content because if you really look into embedded carbon, I mean, you'll probably not bring structures from all around the world. You will probably fabricate them in California. And then, I mean, last but not least, I also link to what Joe just said. 
long-term impactful solutions for the society. I mean, that is what we are needing. I mean, of course, mainly jobs, but of course also other technology impacts uh, we may see. So I think there's a lot we can bring from the global market to California in that aspect to really make it also a truly sustainable solution. And and maybe let me close with a maybe with a bit of a positive note because we talked a lot about challenges here, but I mean it is a once in a lifetime opportunity we're having I think in California with a floating wind. And yeah, it may not fully happen by 2030 with the exact goals, but I think uh, the, the the path is right uh, and the path has started now. I mean the the goals for the industry are set. And I'm sure even if we are maybe a little bit delayed from the start, I mean, we'll pick it up later once the industry is established and then the momentum will be there. Tim and Joe, thanks very much for talking. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today's guests have been Tim Fisher of Ramble and Joe Rand of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for more energy policy research and insights. You can also follow the Center by subscribing to our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Our address is climbmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.